to 11. Though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. You may be seated. While you're getting your Bibles out, and those outlines that you find in the announcement sheet, uh, just uh, a quick reminder that uh, this next Sunday night, October 12th, following our assembly, we are going to have a reception honoring Doug and Loda Brown for his and, and her many, many, many decades of service to this church as spiritual leaders, as shepherds of this church congregation. And just want to draw your attention to that, to that announcement in the, uh, the announcement sheet and to remind you of it. It is, uh, it is, it is it's, a, it's a wonderful thing that we get to do as a church, we sheep, when we're allowed to say thank you to our shepherds. And this is going to be a, an opportunity for you to do that. And uh, the details of all of that is, is found in the announcement sheet, but wanted to draw your attention to it. And then uh, uh, se- secondly, um, I, I'm, uh, I, I can't express to you just how happy I am at the, uh, the announcement this morning that Seanette is going to be working with our kids. That, that is, that's fantastic news. As you know, our, our church puts a lot of stock in children and, and the importance of, of children and the importance of, of us investing our time and our efforts in allowing them not only to see in us, but to hear from us and to see modeled in us the, the fact that there's nothing more significant in this world than knowing God as their Father and Jesus as their Savior and knowing that the Holy Spirit lives inside of them. And I want you to begin this week praying for Seanette and for her family as they make uh, this transition and she gets ready to, uh, to come on board and, and to do what it is that she's been doing for decades. And that is pouring her life into children and into kids. And I think that's, that's fantastic. I, I do also want to recognize there's, there's a lot of people that during the interim period uh, have, have been very, very helpful to Richard as he... Uh, has organized and, and uh, worked very hard to make sure that uh, things are still happening with the children's ministry. And I'd, I'd like for you to write a little note to Richard, if you don't mind. Get one of those pink cards out. Uh, the amount of time that Richard has put in, uh, well, that, that's, that's redundant. I mean, Richard's going to put in the time, right? That's the way he's built. But the fact that he put in even extra more time uh, over the last several months to make sure that, uh, that the children's ministry was organized going beyond the call of duty. And I, I think he ought to be recognized for that. He did a fantastic job. And looking forward to, uh, to Seanette carrying on the tradition of, of, of Myra and, uh, and Tamara and Kirby 
and uh, please be praying for her. Uh, I've recognized one other person maybe. Uh, Roberta Giles was up here a lot in the interim period as well, and uh, you might want to say thank you to, to Roberta as well. She, she does great work and has put in a lot of time as well this summer during the interim period. But now it's time for us to think about Jesus and to think about, as we transition from the Old Testament into the New Testament, uh, the life that the Gospels talk about, the Gospel of the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your gracious way of allowing us to come into your presence and for you not just to be real in our mind, but be real in our life and solid, the most solid, real part of our life, Father, is You. And we're thankful that everywhere we go in this world, we go in Your love and Your grace, and we go in Your sight. We pray, Father, that as we live and we encounter those difficult times where we fall short of, of the, the, the way that You would have us live, Father, that we are cognizant of the grace that comes to us, of, of the forgiveness, but, but even more rallied in our mind and in our strength and in our will, Father, and our, 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 our will to be obedient to You, to be rallied towards change, to be conformed to the image of Your Son in all that we do, to, to see things the way that He sees them, to love the way that He loved, to teach and to talk and to respond, to place all of our affections on life the way that He did. So teach us how to do this, Father, by giving us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray, Father, for this great blessing to be upon our entire church this morning. We pray it in the name of Jesus, all the church says. I want to begin very quickly with a statement that we're using at the outset of all of these messages. If you're visiting with us this morning, we started in January. We're going all the way to December, looking at every Sunday uh, each book of the Bible. And this last Sunday we finished with Malachi, the last great prophet of the Old Testament. And now we are entering into the New Testament. We're going to be looking at the Gospels. But there's a statement that as we go from Genesis all the way to the maps, there is a statement that kind of encompasses or crystallizes what we think about the Bible, or at least in part. And that statement's up here on the screen. Let's say it together. The Bible is not a random collection of stories, but one story about God man, what went wrong, and what God is doing it to put, put it back together. I want to begin with a little story. In September of 1940, so it's going back uh, 70 years or so, a fellow by the name of Witold Pilecki, a Polish army captain, did the unthinkable. While everybody is trying to escape Auschwitz, he sneaks in to Auschwitz. And there was a reason for that. Pilecki knew that something was terribly wrong with that concentration camp. And as a committed disciple of Jesus of Nazareth and as a Polish patriot, he could not sit by and watch. What he wanted to do was to get some information on the horrors of Auschwitz. But he knew that nobody could do that from the outside. They would have to get it on the inside. So he came up with a plan. The superiors approved this daring plan. They provided a false identity card with a Jewish name. And then Vytold Pilecki allowed himself to be arrested by the Germans in one of the daily routine roundups in the streets of Warsaw. Pilecki was then sent to Auschwitz, and he was assigned the inmate number 4859. Now, when he went, Pilecki was not a young man. He was a husband of a wife, a father of two, 
And as he was being rounded up and arrested, and it was all becoming real, that this plan was going to come to fruition, he's being trucked off to Auschwitz. He said to himself, I bade farewell to everything I had known on this earth. He said goodbye. And he became just like any other prisoner. He was despised. He was beaten. He was threatened with death. And in 1941, prisoner 4859 started working on his dangerous mission inside the camp. He organized the inmates into resistance units. He boosted morale, documented the war crimes that were taking place inside of that concentration camp. Pilecki used couriers to smuggle out detailed reports of the atrocities to the Allies. By 1942, he had also helped organize or, or uh, uh, put together a, a secret radio station inside of that camp using scrap parts. And the information that he was broadcasting out to the Allies pr provided those Western Allies with key intelligence information about the atrocities inside of Auschwitz. The spring of 1943 rolls around. Pilecki is fortunate enough to join the camp bakery. During the night, while he's working in the camp bakery, he's able to overpower a guard, escape. Once free, he is able to finish re his report, send it on to London, estimating that about two million souls had been killed in Auschwitz. Now, in London, they got this report, thought it was so outlandish, believed it was exaggerated, did not believe that it was true to the extent that it was. And to the extent that today we know that two million people were killed in that camp. But here's how a contemporary Jewish journal, actually an online journal, summarizes Pilecki's life. They wrote, and I quote, Once he set his mind to the good, he never wavered, never stopped. He crossed the great human divide that separates knowing the right thing from doing the right thing. End of quote. Snuck into Auschwitz. As I said earlier, we ended the Old Testament last week with a, a study of Malachi. And as you remember, the Old Testament, that great Old Testament book of Malachi, ends in anticipation of something great that's going to be taking place down the road. The last chapter, the last verses of Malachi say this, Behold, I am going to send you whom? Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, when the New Testament opens up, it opens in a sense of fulfillment. Four and a half years, four and a half centuries after the writing of Malachi, Paul the Apostle writes in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. The, the Living Bible puts it this way, and I think it's, it's much more dynamic. It says, but when the right time came, the time God decided on, He sent His Son, born of a woman, born as a Jew. If you've got your Bibles open, you might want to write in there the right time or somewhere on your outline. You may want to write those words, the right time. And my question is, reading Paul, Brother Paul, the, the right time? The fulfillment in the fullness of time? God sent His Son? That was the right time for the birth of a child? I mean, when you think about the first century and you consider that time, it seems so inhospitable. 
It seems like the most inhospitable time that a child could be born into. You know, when babies are born these days, one of the things that we do is we want to make sure that we've thought about the money. We want to make sure that the health plan is, is, is adequate. And if not, we, we make changes to that health plan to make sure that the insurances are going to cover it. There's all kinds of things that young parents do to their homes. Uh, all those sharp edges are covered by some kind of foam. There, there's a, a level of peace that they want to, to kind of fall down on that house. Peace. You know, one of the, the one of my favorite things, believe it or not, to do in the world that Ellen and I do together is from time to time we have the privilege and the honor of babysitting Marin and Graham Blankenship. And and it's a wonder what what beautiful kids they are to us, and the fact that we get to spend some time to us with us is is a joy. But one of the things that uh, that uh, it's kind of cool about that babysitting thing is uh, Ellen will put Graham to bed. I will put Marin to bed and we'll get her in there and kind of get the lights dim and turn on the classical music with the little classical music player and, and get her all tucked into bed. And then I'll start reading books to her. There's Bible books and we'll read the Bible books and we'll read the stories. And, you know, we turn a page and there's all, lots of stuff on it. I go, I spy and we'll play that little game for a little bit. And then we pray together and then she wants to read another story. And, and it's wonderful, wonderful, it's peaceful, and it's cozy, and it's warm, and it's great. And then the next thing I know, Ellen is waking me up. And she says, you need to wake up, big boy. That snoring is keeping Marin awake. <laughs> Think for a moment of the historical context of the beginning chapters of Matthew and Luke that talk about the birth of Jesus. Pompey arrives in 63 B.C. in the land that the Romans are calling Palestine. And when he walks into Israel, he finds Israel in confusion, and his arrival is going to create even more. Some years earlier, about a about hundred years earlier, the Hebrews had kicked the Seleucids out of Israel, and they had self-ruled themselves for a century. They had rededicated and reconsecrated the temple. That's what Hanukkah is all about. Now Pompey himself is walking into the Holy of Holies. And when he died 30 years later, the Hebrews were thinking to themselves, you know, it's about time. Even though there were those who compromised with Rome like the Sadducees, there would be those who would never see coexistence with Rome as even a remote possibility. They would go down with the ship if it came to that, but they would never compromise. So it was a blatant inevitability that when Caesar Augustus made Herod king, he would never be accepted by the general populace. First of all, he had been appointed king by a pagan Roman. And then number two, he was half Hebrew. So he was never going to be accepted on that basis alone. What Israel would do, would, they, would be, they would wait on the heaven-sent successor of King David, who would be their Messiah. But in the meantime, there would be revolt. And revolt would be more than just something that's swirling in the wind. At the death of Herod the Great in 4 B.C., he's laying there dying in his palace there in Jericho. Uh, a, a scholar by the name of N.T. Wright pins these words. He said, he said, the death of Herod in 4 B.C. brought movements of revolt to a head that were so interconnected and intertwined that distangling different factions, parties, and leaders seems impossible to 20th century scholars. Revolt was just the name of, of the game. And, and, and people thought that the death of the wretched Herod the Great would usher in this new moment in their history. 
that the Messiah would come, that God would act, and that things would, 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 would happen and, and would allow Israel to flourish like it had done under the times of David and Solomon. But then there's Herod lying in his bed, and he's dying this horrible death and trying to find some comfort in the coolness of the breeze in the palace there that's over the, the, the Wadi Kelt there in Jericho. And, and with this new moment in history being ushered in, the people begin to rebel and, and to riot in the streets. And one of the last things that Herod does before he dies is to lower that hammer severely, that one last time, to squelch the rebellion, and people die. And then this led to an even fuller revolt after Herod dies, which is put down by one of his sons, Archelaus. Archelaus was, it was this king in the making that didn't fall too far from the tree of his father, Herod. His father, Herod, had been brutal. Archelaus was going to learn that, but not only learn, he was going to take it to a new level. And Archelaus puts down this, 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 uh, this rebellion in Jerusalem at the death of his father by the, the, the streets just running red with blood. And Archelaus and then and his brother Antipas have to travel to Rome to argue with Caesar Augustus at who's going to succeed their father Herod as king of the Jews. And in the absence of these would-be rulers, as Antipas and Archelaus are in Rome, a new revolt takes place on the streets of Israel. This time, the Roman general in charge of the province of Syria comes and places an interim procurator by the name of Sabinus in charge. Well, that makes the Hebrews even hotter, and the revolt gets more intense that Sabinus can't stop it. But at the same time, his soldiers are looting the temple, which further angers the people. Well, Varus, this Roman general from the province of Syria, comes back. He relieves Sabinus of duty, and he grabs 2,000 insurgents. 2,000 insurgents and crucifies them for miles along the road. Just imagine from 1604 to Commerce Street on 281 just crosses every few feet with people hanging on them dying. Well, there was one particular group, the Zealots, and the Zealots were not just, you know, kind of accidentally named Zealots. I mean, these were the guys that were looking for a fight, and the very thought of paying taxes to Rome was just fueling that on a daily basis. And the zealots claimed that that tax that they were going to be paying to the Romans was just a God-dishonoring badge of slavery to the pagans. Well, later on, in all of this strife, in all of this, this inhospitable culture and context, Rome is going to decide, well, you know what, we don't want to put a Hebrew in charge of the Hebrews. We're going to put our own man in charge, a fellow by the name of Pontius Pilate. Now, in history, we know of at least seven incidents in the ten years of his procuratorship that triggered revolts, beginning about the time that Jesus is beginning his ministry. Number one, he, he tried to bring Roman standards into Jerusalem, started a revolt. Used money from the temple treasury to build an aqueduct, started a revolt. Sent troops to kill Galileans while they were offering their sacrifices. This is referenced in one of the, the, the uh, chapters in Luke, Luke chapter 13, where we read that there, are these, though, uh, there were some that were present with Jesus who told about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. There is the capture and the condemning to death of a leader of an uprising that he later let go, a fellow by the name of Barabbas. He is forced into crucifying the leader of a messianic movement between two thieves in the midst of a rebellion and a riot in Jerusalem. He caused another uprising by placing Roman shields in the palace at Jerusalem. And then he executed brutally the leader of a non-revolutionary movement in Samaria, which got him dismissed from his position. So during the time that Jesus is being born, you are talking about 
fighting and, and rebellion and revolt and political intrigue and its brutal and cruel history. But that's not the only reason why it was an inhospitable time for Jesus to be born. It's also during this time that the scholars who study the, the, the New Testament began to speak not of Judaism, but Judaisms. When you read Josephus, there are at least four philosophies, major philosophies of Judaism during this period of time. You have Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and Zealots. And they are so fragmented and, and so at war and debating each other all the time and, and so fragmented and, and, and separated from each other, they couldn't even, you know, they couldn't decide and agree on which calendar to use. There was a lunar calendar that was used inside of Jerusalem. There was a solar calendar that was used outside of Jerusalem. A child being born in Palestine in these years would have been like a child being born in modern, strife-torn countries like Croatia and Somalia and Syria and Iraq. But just like Vitold Pilecki, crossing the great divide between knowing the right thing to do and actually doing it by going into Auschwitz in 1940, at a much more infinitely profound level, the Son of God left His place in glory and entered into our world, your world and my world, that is full still to this day of the Genesis 3, verse 15 and 16, briars and thorns. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 14, God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And for that to happen, it would take one of the greatest of mysteries, the Incarnation. The Incarnation. Incarnation is just a big theological word that means uh, becoming flesh. If something is incarnated, it's something like an idea incarnate is a, an idea whose time has come and you can see it living in people. This is God becoming a human. Incarnation. A rather lengthy reading from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, talks about it. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him what? Jesus. What's his other name? Emmanuel. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who was unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. The God who is spirit became a human being living in flesh. 
God Himself, born of a woman, born into a world full of briars and thorns, very much unlike the world that all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, as God is creating it and speaking a word and things are happening, and He pronounces on it that word tov, that it is the exact uh, replication uh, uh, that He had in His mind when He created it, that world is no longer that way. After sin entered into that world, so did the thorns and, and the briars. And it wasn't, just, it wasn't just literal in the sense that there are now briars and thorns in the world. The briars and the thorns get into relationship and get into our mind and get into our emotions. And get into our social contacts. And that's why there's evil and wickedness in the world this day. It is God the Son leaving His place in glory to, to this world that is full of briars and thorns. And while we might not be able to get our minds fully around how God the Creator could become like one of His creatures, the Incarnation does tell us some very important things about God. For instance, I'll give you two, just one. The first one is this, God is humble. God is humble. In the world that Jesus was born into, humble was not considered a compliment. You didn't say, oh, she's so wonderfully humble. You would say, no, she's so wretchedly humble. God the Son left His place in glory and came into a broken world, born into the family of a poor carpenter. The birth taking place in the shelter for animals. The Creator of the universe becoming smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until He is no larger than a single fertilized egg that is barely visible to the eye. You know, as we've seen in that Old Testament... That study. God is holy and God is majestic and God is powerful and and God is, is a fire. But it is in the humbleness of God that makes it possible for us to know Him. One of Max Lucado's best books was a book called God Came Near. That talks about the, the significance of what it means for God in, in, in the infinite space between where He exists as supreme value, the center of the universe, and where we live, that he, he, he covered all of that territory, covered all of that space, covered all of that infinity in order to come and to be with us. It's in His humbleness of leaving that glory and coming in the form of Jesus that makes it possible for us to know Him. I love one of the things that... Um, that, that David Banton said in his prayer this morning about the Christ and, and, and about God's Word, but the Christ teaching us how to think about God. When God came near in the form of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, as Jesus, in that humility, we see God in ways that we have never seen Him before. And then secondly, not only is God humble, but then God is approachable. Philip Yancey wrote a book, um, The Jesus I Never Knew, many years ago, a very good book. But he writes that in Jesus, God found a way of relating to human beings that did not involve fear. What is it that every time God appears on a mountain, or even the angels, the messengers of God show up, what happens? People fall face first on the ground and they are petrified, they are terrified, and God and the angels have to say continually, 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 fear not. Don't be afraid. Yancey's point is well taken. In Jesus, God found a way of relating to human beings that did not involve fear. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling literally tabernacled. He made His tent. He camped among us. 
And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and the only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. You know, one of the things that we marvel at in this life are these great stories. Heroic stories. Courageous stories. Like the one of Vitold Pilecki. We marvel at the greatness of their work as he sneaks in. As In 1940, he's sneaking into Auschwitz. Greater yet is the God who snuck into our world to make a difference. And allow us to see His glory. And to have these four Gospels revealed to us in such a way as David prayed that we will know how to think about the Christ. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, this is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. One of the one of the really amazing things about the fullness of time, the right time for Jesus to be born in, is that it would be absolutely the wrong time in the way that we're thinking. But there's a reason that He did that. He came at the worst of times in order for us to be blessed with the best of times. The abundant life, the significant life, the life full of meaning and purpose and a power to live. And, and all of those blessings, the confidence and the freedom from guilt... And the direction and all of these things, that the way that we're to relate to each other in relationships, of knowing every day that God's Spirit is testifying to our spirit, that we know that He is our Father wherever we go, that He came at the worst of times in order for us to be able to experience the best of times. And that He came and was born once in order for us to be born again. Men's going to lead us in a song right now, and our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Maybe you've been thinking about your, your life and you know that your life has been going in all kinds of directions and none of them really seem to make sense. Uh, you follow one and it leads kind of to a dead end. Maybe you lead to another place and it's a cul-de-sac. You lead to another place and it just seems like you're brought to the brink of a cliff. You know, one of the things that is so amazing about the God that is revealed to us in Christ is that while God is King and God is our Creator, what is revealed to us in Jesus is that He is not the God who oppresses. He is not the King that will enslave. He is not the King that is going to, to take everything that you have. In fact, He gave you everything He had in heaven. His one unique Son in order that you might find the real life, the true life, the abundant life, the significant life that you've always wanted, that you've always needed that you always felt that was out there but never had a chance to get your arms around until you begin to see a little bit of it in the life of Christ. If there are some ways that we can minister to you this morning through prayer, whatever it might be, our shepherds are going to be down here at the bottom. We want you to come down and talk to them as we stand and praise God together. All day long of Jesus I am singing, He my song of joy will ever be. All the while He keeps my heart bells ringing.